and welcome to another episode of The Dicer Screaming. <sighs> the podcast brought to you from people who probably should just be quiet and sit down. <laughs> the stone soup of gaming podcasts. Yes. Like, hey, uh, you know, if, uh, if one of you had some carrots, this, this would just be an amazing podcast. Oh, and... Uh, you know what it needs? It really needs like a few more potatoes. And topic. And, like, if one of you got some celery? Okay, we could throw that in there. And you get soup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, meeting lowered expectations <laughs> since 1986. <laughs> yeah, All right. the bowl of hot water yes. of gaming podcasts. <laughs> the dice are screaming is back. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, hope you're having a good week and everything. It's, uh... Been closer to spring, almost uh, St. Patty's Day. That'll be tomorrow for us. So hope you have a great one, and uh, hope you're staying safe and staying sane out there. Everybody's Irish. Oh well, for you, St. Patty's Day is just another day to be you. <laughs> well, you know the beer's not green on the regular days, mm. but uh, no, I don't even do the green beer on the seventeenth. Uh, not my style. It's perfectly good beer. You don't need to tamper with it. <laughs> oh yeah, well it's just a fun time. So hopefully we'll have a, a good one. We're having a little feast here, but um, yeah, just let us know how you are celebrating your St. Patty's Day. Hopefully it went well with no jail time or police called or anything <laughs> set on fire in true Irish tradition. <laughs> oh, a cry and shame! It had to all burned down. <laughs> oh no, I, nothing of that ilk. <laughs> I I ex. It, Anticipate a restrained level of enjoyment, uh, but oh. there may be some corned beef and uh, some potatoes and uh, other traditional St. Patty's Day fare. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, truly the beginning of spring. Of course, I'm going to be exhausted tomorrow, so yeah, cannot be helped. Uh, it will be very restrained celebration. Well, yeah, so uh, we got some topics, got some call-ins, and we got a call-in from Jason and Joe, so... Uh, yeah! Hey, guys! Who should we do first, Jason or Joe? Oh, let's do Jason first. Jason first, all right. So Jason has a couple of thoughts to share with us, and then we'll get on to Joe. So take it away, Jason. Hey, guys, Jason here. Great episode. Just want to mention that finally listen to your D4 and Highlander part. Yeah, the D4, can't stand them. I use D8. Well, I have D8s that are marked one to four twice, and I have D12s that are marked one to four three times. I actually prefer the D12s, but the D4 is a platonic solid, unlike the abomination that's a D10. I, I use D20s to roll D10s. As far as Highlander goes, and I know you only want to talk about the original movie in the series, but when you talk about rebooting, what's wrong with going with the director's original vision? Highlander is one of these movies where People put their own fan cannon in there. They see the movie, and then they see what the director intended, and they get angry at the director because the director's vision doesn't match their fan cannon. So why not go with the director's vision? If you want to see... <laughs> I, I just gave you a show's worth to talk about. As far as a reboot, we actually got that last year on Netflix with a movie called The Old Guard with Charisse Theron in it. Um, check that out if you haven't seen it. But The Old Guard is effectively a Highlander reboot. Um, if you want to use fanfic instead of the director's original vision. I'll quit banging that drum now. But I will say this. If you're looking for another rock soundtrack with a movie, then I would highly recommend the wonderful movie that Stephen King directed. Yep, you know what I'm, where I'm going with this. Maximum Overdrive with the ACDC soundtrack. Because Maximum Overdrive is effectively a soundtrack written by ACDC for the movie, just like this one was written by Queen for the movie. And even if... Even though that poor guy lost his eye in the filming of Maximum Overdrive because Stephen King was on coke at the time, I, I do recommend Maximum Overdrive for the Ux, and you'll stay for the great music. Talk to you later. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, okay. So we were just kind of joking around with the Die 4, but <laughs> hey, I like the old uh, Pyramid Die 4. My Caltrip, uh, you know, so stick it in a, a super glue it to a baseball bat. You got yourself a morning star. Yeah, you know, lots of uses for those Die 4s. Um, oh, yeah, especially the laser etched ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't want one of those lost on the floor in the middle of the night. Yeah. Deadlier than a Lego. <laughs> it uh, Because that's how much damage it's a die for because it deals that much, that much damage, damage to your foot. That much damage when you step on it, yeah. No, uh, I, 
I actually share the dislike of the traditional pyramid-shaped die 4. I would rather use a die 8 because... And I, I know this is this is going to be a weird gamers and their freaking dice moment, but the tactile sensation of holding a die and having it roll out of your palm, strike a surface, and roll, mm-hmm. okay? It's very Las Vegas, craps table, sure. daddy needs a new pair of shoes, yeah, seven they're... come eleven feel. And the die four, it would just do this plunk. And then that was what you got. Yeah, you got to roll it, roll around your palm a few times. But man, uh, hating on the D10, man, an ancient design. And oh yeah, I don't get that one at all. Though yeah. uh, I'm more of a you know like uh, the percentile possibilities of the die ten uh, make it one of like the system standards that like yeah. literally anybody can can unravel and make sense of a percentile based system like Although- you see in Call of Cthulhu. So it's it's got this universal appeal, and it still has the like tactile sensation that I was talking about. <laughs> Rolling like a real dice ought to roll. Yeah, so but I do really like the dual die, uh, the die twenty dual numbered. But yeah, you know each of them. Um, but so let's get on to the other thing. A lot of ground to cover. So Highlander, oh, yeah. the all right. So we did talk about the TV show, and yeah, we don't uh, really talk about the other ones, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going with the original directors, I think we were pretty standard on that. that that's the original director's vision. I mean, maybe uh, the two was a outgrowth of his vision, but yeah. hey, man, it's not head canon. We're not writing fanfic here. We just really liked the first one, and so I think that's we're overthinking it if we go any farther. Hey, the Lucas effect happens in all genres where, like the the original guy's vision sometimes differs. Like, hey. Look, in the end, it is, it was, it's no longer Lucas's product, but uh, it was Lucas's product. And if he wanted a guy in there named Jar Jar Banks and he wanted a bunch of people to walk out of the theater and just go, oh God, kill me. You know, I, I don't know why I spent money on this. If that's what his vision was, it's his vision. I can't really take that away from him. I mean, it's his property at the time and he gets to do with it what he wants. And, you know, sometimes... You strike gold, and then, unsatisfied with having struck gold, you keep digging until all you've got is a hole in the ground. Hmm. Um, I've never understood that impulse, uh, you know. But a person who is a creative, a part of them creates because it's what they want to create, and I, there there is something to be said fair, fair. that. You know, that's the cost. That you're not always going to like what they create, and I, I can't disrespect that because I'm a huge fan of Lou Reed. Who, over the years, in many interviews, he had spelled out that he was not really, you know, like, why don't you do more stuff with commercial appeal, like some of your, you know, classic hits. He's like I, that, I don't really care. I mean, you know, if, if something's a hit, that's terrific. They liked it. Uh, I'm really happy, but uh, I'm, I'm not gonna just sit there and only do things that people like. I'm going to make what I like, and then if people like that, that's great. I don't care either way. So I got to give, I got to give respect. Uh, I don't know if I would have gone in the same direction as the, the, uh, you know, creators behind Highlander, but I, I do owe them a giant thank you for giving us this legacy piece. Yeah, the first one, yeah, but there will only be one. There only should have been one. <laughs> but okay, so you also brought up soundtracks. Okay, maximum oh. overdrive, fine, but I'm going to raise the bar on you. Uh-oh. The Crow, um, my life with the Thrill Kill Cult and other great hits, including Iggy Pop. Yeah. My life with the Thrill Kill I saw them open for Susie and the Banshees in like 89. That was a great, or was it 90? can't remember, but uh, I've still got the stub somewhere. Wow. That first girl soundtrack is really good. And, uh, you know, I played a lot with Cyberpunk and uh, Shadowrun. That was a, a big replay. But actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to up myself. Uh, the movie Hardware. Yes. With Ministry Stigmata. Yeah, and industrial as, hardcore soundtrack in a like yeah. There's so much. Oh, 
There's so much wind in that one, too. That one was... Uh, I am going to have to look up the movie you mentioned that was the extenuation of uh, the Highlander type. Okay, I, I'm going to look that up. But, um, I, I don't know, I should very specifically mention that my objection to the rock soundtrack, as opposed to the symphonic soundtrack, is less fierce when it comes to things that drift further into science fiction. Uh, into the modern world, sure. if if it's a fantastic yeah. subject, but it's set in the modern world, I don't really find rock soundtracks that bad. Yeah, hardware now, is more of a science fiction, whereas Crows still has elements of fantasy, The Return from the Dead, Lost Souls. Yeah, now, if you go into a fantasy movie, like, uh, what if we got... Def Leppard to score the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, uh, look, it's not that I hate Def Leppard, but now is not the time. <laughs> okay, uh, very fond of my old albums, but uh, like there's time and a place for everything. So, with fantasy, I have much stronger objections. You know, I think this argument can all be ended with just one thing: uh, the immigrant song in Thor Ragnarok, the opening. Oh. Oh, that's really inappropriate to bring up on air. Why? Nobody on nobody listening to this wants to hear me have yet another orgasm over that scene. Okay, I mean the yeah, kimono I mean, blew off right, just right that, in the that, theater. I was like, "This was worth the price of entry." Who knew that Led Zeppelin would write a song for a movie some thirty years later? Yeah, they did. So yeah, forty actually forty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm dating myself too much. <laughs> well, somebody's got to date us. That's right. <laughs> well, my wife's. No, so, that was what I thought in the theater at the time was, my life can't be any better than this. Yep. I was, like, the only downer was that as I watched it, I had this terrible feeling. The, the, the pessimist in me went, there's going to be a moment when this ends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it ended. So things They could make an hour and a half loop. Just of just the immigrant song, and slaying fire Thor giants with Mjolnir, annihilating fire giants with Mjolnir, uh, and I would be one hundred percent content. Like just an hour and a half of that straight, I would pay twenty bucks for my popcorn and not feel like I was robbed. I would be thrilled. So, <laughs> all right, so, yeah, yeah, good example. That is terrific. It ends right there. Right Sorry, rock, Jason. Right place. I, I I get you, man. You you, you maximum overdrive. Oh, movie and, love it. Emilio Estevez. Yeah, and uh, all that. Yeah, there should have only ever been one Highlander, and all the others. You know, we talked about the gaming and things like that. They they've tried, but you know that first one just looms large. And uh, yeah, good for that though. Oh yeah, I mean they certainly gave us something that absolutely lit people's imaginations on fire and delivered an awful lot of win for one product. Okay, you don't often get that much victory in a single outing. (laughs) It's hard to find anything in, like, then or now that hits all the right notes at the same time. Everything, a lot of things have their their little bit, like, okay, you know, We've got some stuff in the plus column here and some little deficits over there. I just don't have a lot of memories of being that amazed by one thing in one movie mm-hmm. uh, all the way through and yeah. on so many levels. Well, hey, thanks again, oh, Jason, gracias. for calling. And uh, yeah, keep them coming, man. Uh, we definitely dig your skew on things and we definitely love listening to other people's views so that is definitely uh the besides the die 10 hate sorry man <laughs> i get you on the the double d20s because i like i sometimes like rolling those too it's kind of hard to mess with those but you know it is what it is so thanks a lot jason take care what's up boys it's been a minute since i've called in but i'm still out here listening and i could not let jason be the only one calling into your show no way that will not stand anyway awesome to hear you guys going off about highlander it rules 
that movie it, it's just amazing the first time i saw it absolutely blew my mind i've watched it infinity times so glad they only made one movie and didn't try and ruin it with anything else and i'm glad you guys didn't talk about anything else other than than that first movie so great stuff talk to you again keep up the great work and peace out hey joe good to hear from you my friend hey joe cool yeah yeah um yeah there can only be one yeah i'm glad you enjoyed our rambling gush on <laughs> highlander because i'm and yeah that uh don't feel that don't be such a stranger stranger um call in whenever you feel like it i'm uh, glad that uh we seem to be pretty much in lockstep about that one. There's just so much win on that one. I love the sarcasm that you know, there was only one movie. There was only one. <laughs> yep, that's right where I'm at. Is like I you know, people talk about. There's parts of the Highlander two and three maybe that you can salvage something. No, no, I'm, I'm just totally kidding. There's nothing. Uh, the Highlander TV show, sure. Well, I, I had an emotional reaction. I mean, let's face it. The first one evoked a lot uh, in the people who saw it. Honestly, I can't give them too much grief because you almost can't capture that lightning in a bottle. Yeah. It, it just, it's not a thing that can be done. It was a singularity, I think. And uh, much like the Matrix movie, yeah, they went on to make two more. I really just liked that first one. As if it was the only one because it told the story that I needed to have told. I, I, yeah. I, I'd seen everything at that point. It's basically uh, and like the old Civil War. as the ending was, it was still immensely satisfying. Like, after all these centuries, he finally gets to be immortal. You know, just be an ordinary person. Yeah. I, you know, just like they say in the Civil War, I've seen the elephant. Well, I'm ready to go home now. (laughs) You know, I've seen what I come here to see. So, yeah, uh, great stuff. And um, definitely, man, we're glad that uh, you're still doing good. It's good hearing from you. So, I appreciate you calling in. Huzzah, huzzah. So, uh, we're going to get with our own ramble in just a minute. I'll take a brief break and be right back. So thanks, Joe. All right. Hey, we're back. So, hey, thanks a lot lot for sticking around and um, getting into some topic. Yeah. So we've been kind of dilly-dallying around with comics a lot. So I think we're going to wrap up some of our comics uh, backlog with kind of finishing this out we've been hinting at sword and sorcery and warlords so yeah we're gonna just get right into it yeah because look if we're going to round out comic discussions for a while you know and and put that like further comic discussions off for some time in the distant future what a way to go out than to discuss the lingering relevance of some of the sword and sorcery comics that emerged out of the same era, like, well, prior to and during the era in which gaming was born. And, like, these things had a correlational, you know, existence. So that they had influence over one another. Um, (laughs) You know, as gaming was emerging, it influenced comics. As comics were emerging with these sword and sorcery themes, they influenced gaming. Uh, yeah, and they grew out of the same roots of pulp literature of Robert E. Howard. So, yeah, yeah, let's start right off the bat with a quick conversation. We're not going to spend too much time on this because, hey, uh, whatever we say has been said by many people much yeah. better than Conan us. Conan has a big footprint. Everybody's talked about it. So we, we just need to give the appropriate props. Okay. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian, Roy Thomas, uh, Bushima, their writing and artwork were outstanding. And two titles... Conan the Barbarian, which was more or less the safer one, and Savage Sword, which was a still pretty uh, family-friendly, but just a little bit more gory and a little bit more showy. Yeah. Uh, you got a little bit more of the boobs and butt, uh, boob window and you know side view. But yeah, that's what <laughs> Conan was, and uh, he strode mightily on those pages of Marvel, and those two publications are great. Now, where we want to take a little moment out and give an homage, because we have a passing of another great, uh, Red Sonia came out of the early Conan, mostly by Barry Windsor Smith in the original series of Conan the Barbarian, and uh, she was so popular that she demanded her own comic, and so they contracted Frank Thorne to come in and write it. Now, Frank Thorne... 
somewhat controversial character. Yeah, he put her in a chainmail bikini, and that became a trope. Now, yeah, I mean, and it was not necessarily a trope then. This is the guy who caused the trope. So we'll give him a nod for that, but, you know, it... it yeah, mid-70s, 75, 76, he comes up with this character in wild-eyed, red-haired, bosomy, Red Sonia with a sword, trampling right next to Conan uh, in several crossovers with her and Conan. Yeah, she would... Um, Wild-eyed as she was, uh, she would stride large and for quite a few issues until Marvel pulled the plug and Frank Thorne was given the way, shown the way out. Um, the, it, her controversial outfit had been a little bit too much for Marvel to handle for a while. Well, that and, I mean, Mr. Thorne, for all of his immeasurable uh, creativity, which I, I do not dispute... Uh, that guy was drawn to lurid tableaus the way flies are drawn to poop. Oh, yeah. He's so, just right I mean, up there with Sternanko and many of the other guys that would do uh, Ditko and uh, the uh, Doctor Strange. That was a great time to be an illustrator then. And, yeah, he would he would draw such great scenery around Red Sonja. Oh, yeah. Her pose, uh, you know, whatever she was fighting was going to be bigger than life and it was going to be grotesque. And yet, interesting, the wizards and a lot of the ghoulish creatures that she ended up encountering, lavishly illustrated and a lot of attention paid, not only to just pacing, and but anatomy and the dynamic of action poses, which lends itself only in the comics. Yeah, venue. now, uh, yeah, Thorne was a prodigious creative in every respect, both in... Uh, world building, artistic, uh, you know, plot development, uh, you know, just he had an enormous amount of talent, uh, but he just had an absolute determined bent to go for, uh, you know, a look and uh, a, a the kinds of scenarios and pictures that eh, would ruffle some people's feathers. Yeah, he, he chafed at her, her chastity bow and all that, and he wanted to push the envelope. Well, Marvel had only so much room to go with and work with it, so off he went, and they parted ways. And so he started Hita of Alizar. Now, if you know anything about Hita of Alizar, it is not for the faint of heart. Oh, yes. Uh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the Kama Sutra versus the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of that, uh, Hita Valazar, if you've read it, yeah, you know it makes Red, what he did in Red Sonia look like an excerpt from the Bible. It literally is, yeah, it's very lurid. And But I would almost argue that even in his luridness, he was very artistic. There was so much attention paid to not only just the puerile form, female form, but also to the surroundings and also to the mood he was trying to get through. If he had a sex scene, it definitely was adding to the story. And that's an encouraging thing from a guy from his standpoint where you look at uh, guys like Wally Wood, you know, like Power Girl. People say, hey, the one thing about Power Girl is why is her boobs so big? Well, Wally Wood started drawing her and he just kept drawing bigger and bigger. He didn't think anybody was paying attention. He said, I'm just going to keep making her tits bigger until somebody notices and, and Indeed, a memo came down, what's with Power Girl's breasts? And he's like, okay, it stops right here. <laughs> uh, which, you know, there there are different genres of, like, uh, uh, illustration. Uh, Betty Page being yeah. an example. Yeah, uh, Wally Wood was famous for drawing her in The Rocketeer. Yeah. And, you know, that... You can't really divorce... The era of expanding comic interest from the fact that it was kind of a sausage fest in the beginning. Yeah, and a lot and, of pinup art. Yeah, a lot of pinup art, a lot of softcore, uh, a lot of pandering, uh, and gentlemen's magazine. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, well, although it's worth remembering that, you know, like in the era far before the internet, uh, the subversive nature of erotica in literature was the side effect of it being more or less banned from everywhere but an adult store. I mean, you just really 
couldn't get anything yeah. that was like, wait, does this imply that human beings have sex and or reproduce by like, coming together and, and doing things while naked? Oh my God, burn it, burn it! Full of heinous lies! This is what causes hairy palms! You know, that kind of ludicrously childlike, naive hatred of all things normal and human uh, meant that very few venues were allowed to slip a little extra in. Uh, yeah, usually the sword and sorcery yeah. genre lent itself to a little extra <laughs> of that DNA, and it's a slap in the face of censorship, which goes all the way back to EC Comics and all that nonsense of the Comics Code Authority. I mean, yeah, we look back at all oh, how trite and prudent they were. Oh, boy. Oh, I can't believe they cared about that. Well, yeah, yeah look, we can't either, honestly. You know, we're like, oh, really? Wow. You yeah, girly magazines and comics start... Uh, a big crusade about what kids were watching. What about the parents? And yeah, I know it sounds like a little bit of a comp out and we're not going to get any further than that. Let's just say that Frank Doran, while it was a contemporary Wallywood and leave it at that. He pushed the boundaries. And if you get chances, Mike said he's a world builder and also a great linguist. He, man, his prose that he come out with that. Yeah, I will not take away anything from the guy's creative abilities. Uh, you know, having seen it and read it, Years ago, uh, I was duly impressed. I mean, guy, yeah. he had an almost, uh, uh, who am I thinking of? Um, Ed Greenwood-esque, you know, uh, just like a comparable level yeah. that, of super creativity and world building that, you know, you, you have to give a nod to that. The, uh, Alizar, uh, which was Hida's home was a central city much like Lankmar or any of the other places that you could pull from yeah, that classic. stock fantasy and yeah classics that was a better word yeah I mean he was really drawn from the best yeah and he used the same things and he populated his world with trolls and half trolls and all sorts of things and man uh, really did a really bang up job on uh, dealing with other races and if you look at well yeah he'd uh, and other races. Hmm. Okay, never mind. I shouldn't have brought that up. It's a bad joke. <laughs> Hita. Uh, perpetually in Hita. Yeah. Of Alizar. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, hey, if you get a chance to check him out, uh, yeah, you might have to go to the back room of the comic shop. I'd definitely uh, guide anybody to have a look at Hita of Alizar, just not for the TNA value, but actually, for if you look past it, there's actually some good workmanship there. Yeah, if you look at some post-analysis, try to find some, uh, you know, retrospectives online uh, and just get the, the short and the quick of it and a few safer, you know, picks. Uh, you know, material is out there to help walk you through what was going on with that. And uh, let's just say it was extremely creative. Yeah, he was passed away in 90 just last week, so. Yeah, it was a COVID-related uh, passing as I understand it. Yeah, but, well, uh, the family hasn't was, said anything about it. He was not officially. in terrific shape yeah. to begin with. So uh, He hasn't yeah. been at the comic scene, which we use quite big. at. real big cosplay proponent, by the way. But oh, anyway, yeah. moving on. Yeah, that, that was from the Marvel days. We got uh, Red Sony out of the way. So let's turn to, to what we've really been uh, chomping the bit to ask. And I'm going to just give it to Mike. Uh, Warlord. Oh, boy. I... Yeah, well, much requested. I didn't know until we were doing the pre-study for this, which, as most regular listeners will know, uh, we do not do an enormous amount of pre-study. You know, we determine a topic, we have a conversation, and we line up our highlights, you know, like that which we insist we must include in an episode. And then that's it. Well, we is, only talk about things we really know about. Yeah, the rest is extemporaneous. So... Uh, I found out that Mike Grell uh, himself had been in the Air Force. I did not know. Uh, but the Warlord, uh, first appearing in 1975 in a special appearance, was, you know, the, the alter ego Travis Morgan. Who, flying an SR-71. Yeah, flying a Blackbird and winding up going into a hole in the, what was it, the Arctic. Yeah, the El magnetosphere, magnetosphere of the, uh, the Earth, like a whole a portal. Yeah. Now, this leads to a lost slash forgotten world. Uh, Scartaris. Scartaris. And 
This is almost a nod to the Hollow Earth Pellucidar series, yes. you know, the Atlantean mythos that emerged out of pulp fiction in the early part of the 20th century. And so giving a clap back to that, you know, Mr. Grell nailed it. Oh, yeah. Uh, except that he took it like one step further, which, you know, Travis Morgan is, you know, an Air Force pilot and badass uh, with a, you know, 44 auto mag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a defender of the sometimes beleaguered by evil peoples of Scartaris, uh, he earns the title the Warlord. With yeah. This enormous winged helmet and. Oh, and the, the magnificent shield and just the sword itself. I mean, so much good was in Warlord that during that time, um, I just wish that in when they had the Marvel DC crossovers, I wanted to have Warlord and Conan. And I understood later that that was a big thing at Marvel, too. They wanted to put two, both those characters together because they brought Elric in. Elric oh. and Conan penned by the story penned by uh, Michael Moorcock. And that was great, but yeah, Marvel crossovers would occasionally do crossovers with DC, like Superman and Spider-Man would occasionally come into the same comic. And that was something that they wanted to have, but um, Warlord was pretty much uh, kind of a unique character, because they took kind of Conan, Tarzan, and the... Edgar Rice Burroughs' Lost World and put them all kind of together in a pot and this is what they come up with. In oh, yeah, a soup of like high fantasy and magic with technology, yep. technology both familiar and ancient, lost, and incredibly powerful. You know, Atlantean level. Yeah, like, as well as like demons and uh, evil beings, you know, the great old ones sort of-esque. Yeah, they managed to roll all of this into one fantastic package. Uh, it was, at least in my humble opine, some of the best sword, sorcery, you know, science fiction combo material that emerged out of the 1970s. I mean, completely original content, and not to say OC. Yeah, uh, let's face Loosely, it, there was but, not yeah, a whole was lot an... of people doing anything like this. Yeah, to put somebody up against Conan... Warlord was it, and man, they came out and they hit a home run with it. And I was always looking for new warlords. I had to unfortunately pick up the annuals because only so much. But yeah, there were some annuals and occasionally some special issues here and there that you could pick up with. But I remember them all with great fondness because always, man, Travis Morgan, the warlord, he was just such a nice guy. Oh, yeah, he was always well-intentioned, okay? This was... uh... <laughs> it's a guy who thinks on his feet, uh, reacts instinctively, but his first instincts are, you know, good. Protecting his people, his beloved, and, you know... There is not a whole lot of malice in the character, okay? And, frankly... It's where you see the John Carter. Yeah. Uh, almost uh, in that. Very heroic right from the outset. Very rarely do you, do you see the warlord... Uh, like, oh, I'm going to have to do a terrible thing. No, either it's probably a pretty good thing, and he's going to run with that, or it's probably a very bad thing, and he's going to try and stop that. It just, it had a little whiff of that. Uh, he's always in the right corner. And, you know, he just, uh, I bring up the John Carter uh, effect as well, because that's a character that gets overlooked a lot when you talk about Conan and Tarzan. But, you know, I didn't quite make a, well, transition between the two characters until later when I started reading more of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and started putting it together. That there was a whole lot going on here. And, you know, John Carter was one of the big characters that later would loom large. I didn't discover him as much because, well, those books were on the top shelf for a reason. But, hey, you know, as I got later, like, wow, the princess is naked all the time? Oh, Deja Thoris? Hmm. But yeah, speaking of costumes, the uh, character of Travis Morgan was drawn pretty scandalous as well. If you want to put it on the same terms as Red, Frank Thorne's Red Sonia. Yeah, they weren't leaving a lot to the imagination. And, well, yeah, definitely he was wearing that loincloth pretty close to home. Well, yeah, although, you know, in fairness, unlike the uh, 
lurid tableau uh, that had like that that whiff of this exploitation uh, with some of the other comics. Uh, this one, uh, all right, you know, it, uh, some may go no homo, bro, but uh, as opposed to the, you know, familiar, uh, like, let's put a woman in something really skimpy, which yeah. emerged out of so many comics created by guys. Uh, here was one where they just said, uh, clothing is not a really big thing in this world. Yeah, the sun shines all the time, so. Yeah, it's always lit. So, you know, this guy does not do shirts. <laughs> or pants. But, hey. Yeah, that, he's none too keen on pants either. But there is a, there's an argument to be made here, and this is where I'm just touching on it, is that male nudity is handled differently True. than female nudity, which is nominally seen as exploited. I'm not trying to cast any aspersions to Frank Thorne or any of his works, but there is a difference in how it's it's handled. And this is where I saw it at first hand for me. Like I said, when I seen that, um, I started reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars, I was getting a little bit, you know, he was pretty much butt naked most of the time, except for his harness and his uh, holster. So, yeah, nudity and kind of titillation have always been a part of that, and that's where the envelope got pushed. But I think DC not only kept it classy, but they did it right. Um, the princesses were suitably unattired, but um, they were also still classy about it. And that's what I'll hand about yeah. Warlord. Is Warlord was uh, far in keeping with better taste than, uh, you know, some of the more lurid productions that, I, honestly, you know, they were just really trying to push the envelope. Whereas Warlord was like, no, we're here to tell the story. And, well, yeah. And, you know, you know the, he, this is where we come across as some of the, as we stumble around trying to describe what's happening with all these characters at the time. This was a big controversy at in the 70s where now pretty much people have made, have come to one side of it or the other of the conversation. This was the developing part of the conversation that hadn't been settled yet to where the boundaries were. And that's the whole point of pushing boundaries. And that's why we focus on this because we were right there as it was happening reading letter columns and also listening to what other people were saying that were wiser and older than us at the time about how these things were changing comics and how the various artists were dealing with these changes in the comics. Yeah, being stuck with a nebulous rule set uh, was not fun. Okay, that For the creatives of that time period, it was an enormous pain in the butt. Uh, you know, like, what can we do? What can't we do? And it changes continually. You know, it just the, this shifting goalposts, like, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And you could do this last week, but uh, next month we're not going to be doing that anymore. It was ridiculous, uh, frankly put. And emerging out of that era and sorting out much better, you know, self-chosen boundaries, as opposed to the, like, the iron boot heel of uh, the old comics code. It just there's we have a collection of very elderly people whose sensibilities were formed at the end of the 1800s, and they will decide everything that you will read in 1968. Yeah, yeah, you know that was not working at all. That really did not uh, that did not engender a, an environment where creativity could prosper. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, now uh, we we. Certainly gushed over the warlord as yeah, well. Yeah, and should, I would I just like to end it by saying that he had a great cast of characters with him. His daughter, uh, was it Jennifer? Yeah. Okay, that was it. Yeah, she had actually magic. She had learned magic. And, of course, um, Shambhala's princess Tara, later queen, when he helped her make her the queen. And <laughs> he had... a. Uh, Quite a bevy of uh, lovers in his time, but yeah, Tara was, he was pretty much, uh, once he got married to her and had his kid, that you know, he was pretty loyal. Yeah. yeah. And I like that about him as well as, um, that's where they decided to go right off the bat. It was a great story. His uh, nemesis, Demios, the sorcerer, uh, scientist, that was also a great nod. And uh, yeah, I did also notice that uh, there's a mention here about Oliver, him looking a lot like Oliver Queen. Yeah, all right. Yeah, let's face it. Mr. Grell uh, had more than one project yeah. during the course of his long and storied career, which, terrific artist, terrific creative. 
Uh, Mr. Grell gets nothing but our massive approval. Uh, that having been said, <laughs> there, there were, there was a intersectional period where the warlord, uh, both in appearance and design, uh, was so similar to Oliver Queen, uh, but with white hair. You yeah, know, just that it it really was a source of much amusement. And that that helm that reminded me of Frank Brazetta's uh, character representation of Cain. Yes. Uh, the Bloodstone series. But All right. Yeah, but talking about some other stuff. Yeah, so we really loved Warlord. It was great written and good stuff. And yeah, uh, again, a symbol of the times. And we would be remiss if we didn't click talk about some of the sexual mores in culture and comics that was being fought at that very moment. We were literally on the front line of the yeah, sexual sword revolution. And, sword and sorcery was right on the cusp because, as I said, the subversive process of trying to find uh, vehicles that were not so immensely popular that they received less scrutiny. You know, yeah. Uh, like the old Tijuana Bibles, the yeah. little cheap cartoon things that they would sell south of the border. And, uh, you know, that, that oeuvre, uh, comics wound up being one of the venues, especially independently produced comics, wound up being one of the venues by which people could get material out that did not meet conventional standards. So, you know, even while this was happening, there had already been, you know, like things emerging like the fabulous furry freak brothers, man, you know, just, uh, so. Yeah. Independent comics, alternative comics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The rise of the alternative comic and thank goodness for the sword and sorcery comics, because like leaving aside changing mores, uh, these were also frequently creatives who were highly literate in, you know, pulp fiction of the early 20th century, uh, end of the 19th century, dawn of the 20th century, and through the 1930s and 1940s. So, you know, these extremely literate people, uh, circa the end of the 60s and into the 70s, they were drawing from terrific sources uh, that they were inspired by and that had caused them to be creatives later in their lives. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just like you're seeing that torch being passed every few decades, carrying the light of science fiction and fantasy into another generation. Uh, now, yeah, I'm, now talking about uh, another comic that DC did, which was called Sword and Sorcery, which was basically the telling of Fappard and the Grey Mouser, uh, penned by Howard Chaikin and... Written by Denny O'Neill, and they were they were spot on with capturing Fritz Lieber's nuance because in the very first issue, there is a Fafford and Grey Mouser of Conan, excuse me, Conan the Barbarian. There's a Fafford and Grey Mouser character that Conan slays, drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. So that's kind of an in joke because Marvel was looking at competition from DC Comics with their sword and sorcery name. They kind of beat them to it. DC uh, locked it in. So they started writing uh, Fapper and the Grey Mouser stories. And there were a couple of original ones. But for the most part, they carried through. Uh, especially like The Sunken Land, The Cloud of Hate, and In the Thieves' House. Uh, from Fritz Lieber himself. But there were other people who would write, including a crossover with Wonder Woman, of all things. Oh, and you know, like you, I feel like I should offer a nod. Here's one that I, I have heard of. Uh, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Yeah. My ex had all of those. Oh, like the whole original run, and I was just floored because it was something that, like completely off my radar. Uh, it wasn't my style of thing, but I see it here referencing the same creative team mm -hmm. you know, at that same era. And you know what? Uh, kudos. Yeah, Jim Starlin was also involved with that, and as well as um, several of the artists for uh, Amethyst, uh, the Princess of Gem World. Yeah, it was a girl's comic, but it was also well-written, and it was another sword and sorcery comic that of that type that was more of the 80s, but it was also put forward. Yeah, it came along just a little later. Uh, but Yeah, and the New 52 rebooted it and, uh, you know, brought it back. So, hey, you know, what's old is new again, what's new is old again. And Sword and Sorcery was a great comic. It was one I was unaware of until much later, but I picked up some compilations of it. And, you know, using Fafford and Grey Mouser in the pages of the comics is a great idea. And 
DC was smart to go with it when they heard that uh, Marvel was getting the Conan imprint. Oh, yeah. You know, that was a that was a big thing uh, for them to score and push on. So, yeah, a little uh, fun uh, in-house joke between uh, the first issue of Conan, which came out killing Baffert and the Grey Mouse there. Now, uh, full disclosure, we're going to close with a final sampling of the sword and sorcery genre that I had zero familiarity with, none at all. I literally knew nothing of this until Yeah, this we week. could talk about Kamali, Last Boy on Earth, or uh, Mad Monkey and Double Dinosaur is also kind of the sword and sorcery or fantasy types. But we're going to go with a another one that I didn't get too much of until much later. Just a couple years ago, I started picking it up. It was uh, Dagar, The Invincible, from Gold Key Comics. And uh, this is one of those things that Dark Horse ended up putting into a hardcover reprint series, which I finally picked up. And I was like, wow, this was well drawn. I wouldn't have felt that this came from uh, Gold Key. But Dagar, just another one of those uh, barbarians. Uh, big dude and barrel-chested, just massive. A guy just hacking his way through monsters and all sorts of wizards and demons. Yeah, well drawn and uh, it was what, 76 it says here? Yes, and uh, on Gold Key Spotlight number 6 and 77. So, yeah, a lot of things um, went through this. and again, Running from 72 to 76 and then like one little, you know, like uh, return in 82. Yeah, like uh, Trag was another uh, one of those uh, Neanderthal superhero and also uh, Dr. Spectre. Yeah, the, uh, the cult piles of Dr. Spectre. I, always, I loved those from Gold Key. I had a couple of them. Huh. Yeah, those, those old comics like that bring back some good memories. But here we are. Once again, the sword and sorcery genre, they created an original character. Yeah, cast right out of Conan and all that. But oh, hey, you know what? Nothing yeah, wrong with that. You put a sword in a guy's hand. I mean, you, you've already like homaged Conan there. So it like I, I refuse to... You're like, oh, they're just ripping <laughs> off Conan. Look, I, just because somebody did it amazingly well and left a huge footprint doesn't mean that everybody else with a sword. Yeah, but Conan. this was an original thing, and, you know, you would expect it to be just a pastiche, an easy copy and paste, just get a few issues out. They actually no. spent a lot of time drawing and lavishly illustrating a world, and you got to explore it with Dagar, Invincible, leading you through it. So, you know, they... Yeah, the, one of the covers here we're looking at, Dagger defies the death talons of the Dark God's giant condor. Okay, fine. You can be as campy as you want with it, but it's still good stuff. Hey, and don't worry, Big Bird had it coming. Yeah, you so. know, when you're fighting a giant rock, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, it does look like, uh, you know, you're, you're about to be turned into a little bird food there. <laughs> and, man, it uh, does not look like fun. But <laughs> uh, that bird had it coming. Okay, he looks like a jerk. Yeah, you... No. Uh, that is our examination of the classic genre of sword and sorcery in the comic book. Uh, which, man, what a relationship it had uh, at the emerging age of the role-playing game. And, I mm -hmm. mean, you know, we are talking about tail end of the 1960s, you know, like... Uh, the, the early comics in 72 to 75, 76. And then they, some of them survived into the 1980s. But that very specific window period was just when gaming was gestating out of wargaming. Mm -hmm. And as you look at some of the samples of those old comics, you begin to see why there was such an instantaneous response uh, where like there were some people who, when the possibility of role-playing gaming came out, when it was presented to them, their first response was, wait, I get to be the stuff from the comic book slash movie that I love? Oh, I am so in. <laughs> right, and we, we typically associate the, the comic book with a superhero, but here we have a outpouring of illustrations. We talk about Appendix N out of the DM's Guide. Well... Here's an illustration, illustrative work, body of work that represents the sword and sorcery genre fully on its own feet and without having to resort to a pastiche of other characters. Like even we talk about uh, Dag, Dagnar, the Invincible. Yeah, so he's basically Conan with blonde hair. But yeah, anybody with 
a sword in their hand is doing the same thing. The fact that you have a savage or barbaric world where there's peril and danger and this is being illustrated, there was a lot of examples to draw from. And I think that it's kind of been lost. And some people are starting to remember it again. DCC uh, Games is starting to bring some of the stuff back. But also people like Dark Horse understood it well that, hey, man, this needed to be preserved because this stuff was just, it was sitting in a vault, you know, moldering. Yeah, almost and, completely forgotten except for a few copies left in you know, like old, uh, you know, comic shops. Yeah. That completely forgotten. In collector's hands. <laughs> you know, bagged and boarded so that they will never see the light of day again. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's sitting in those kind of vaults and it's not doing anybody any good. So <laughs> I have imprisoned it, thereby depriving it of love, and this brings me joy. You know, just, oh, <laughs> yeah, you know the the creepy level of hide. Verger Mason esque there. <laughs> yeah, you know, just going really evil with it. Uh, but yeah, they brought it back to life. Uh, they they reminded people that like, hey, here was a thing that was pretty freaking awesome for its time period. It, it could have been clown shoes. This could easily have gone awry. But no. Instead, uh, you know, quality material. And I'm going to have to do some investigative of my own uh, and track down an opportunity to read some of the back issues. Yeah, because it's always worth a, a look. And hey, if we bring somebody some attention to something they didn't know was there, that's the whole purpose of this podcast. Yeah. So not very heavy in the gaming and just talking about comics and sword and sorcery. Uh, since we've been talking about comics a lot, we wanted to kind of wind it back to kind of an appendix N of comics in the golden or the bronze age as we were growing up and we we're just little children. And we are just, you but know. But we barons. Yeah. But uh, it influences highly, so hey, so much for that. So anyway, uh, we'll wrap it up, and I think we beat that topic now fully to death, and now we'll be- dig a hasty grave and roll it in after rifling through its pockets for spare change. <laughs> uh, take that plus one dagger, thank you. That's a fine price. It's got 17 electrum pieces. Oh. This was totally worth it. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. And uh, if you did, uh, take that follow button and uh, press it gently. And just remind it that show it to who's boss so you can get the first updates when we put out a new podcast like today. So, you can keep up to date with the Dicey Screen Podcast and listen to us ramble along. And with that, we'll end it here. So, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.